Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Hello, everyone. It's Hollister and O'Toole from NYC. What a couple weeks this has been, Hollister. <laughs> Very exciting times. So many um, film festivals, so little time. <laughs> I know. There we were at the Beacon Hotel next door to the Beacon Theater. Yeah, we're like Eloise at the Beacon. We just stay there all the time. So <laughs> You're like Eloise at the Beacon. Yeah, I'm like Eloise's I'm friend that tries yeah. to wrangle an invitation over. <laughs> the theater right next door was sponsoring some of the big events of the Tribeca Film Festival. Tom Hanks was there, Bruce Springsteen was there. There were a couple things that premiered this year at the Tribeca Film Festival that were new developments that I found very interesting. One was that the festival premiered over 30 VR projects, virtual reality. Some of them were directed by the likes of Catherine Bigelow, who won the Oscar for The Hurt Locker. Now, do you think that's the first time that's happening at film festivals? It started a couple of years ago, but Tribeca certainly put it on the map. And yeah. Alejandro yeah. Iñárritu, who did The Revenant, he's premiering a virtual reality film soon at the Cannes Film Festival. Cool. Very cool. It was interesting that Tribeca's uh, festival programmer was referring to traditional movies as flatties. <laughs> virtual reality as the way forward. Well, so, you know, who's there to is that, say? You know, one-dimensional or three-dimensional. But also, the thing about this festival, though, is it's so spread out all over the city now because they have so many films to show. They don't feel like there's a cohesive festival going on where people are congregating and chatting about films in between films, etc. Do you agree? You mean besides our room? <laughs> exactly, where everyone hung out, right? Um, <laughs> so I did get a chance to watch the Lena Dunham panel. And I heard America Ferrera was on that panel, too. Yeah, it was quite the quite the to-do. But there's only one thing I'll leave you with, because Lena Dunham has, you know, she has her point of view, and she clearly states it in everything that she does uh, on film. So there really wasn't much difference. But she did point out something that I thought was really interesting. She said that men's when men get angry, they push it out. So they beat up that kid in the playground, or, you know, they yell at you, or whatever it is they do. But women turn anger on themselves, or statistically. And, you know, that's data that she was putting out there. And she said, interestingly enough, that as the six years progressed and the attack on her nudity in girls didn't dissipate, she started to turn it on herself. And then she sort of got herself together and had got a little help actually around it. And then she recognized what she was doing and that she was really very angry that people couldn't just leave it alone and watch it or don't watch it. It's up to you, you know. But um, but I thought that was really interesting, and I hadn't thought about it before. So there's just a little notation for you. I'm assuming she was wearing clothes on the panel. Yes. You know, she <laughs> okay. was O'Toole. Like, you need to get over yourself. <laughs> you know, you look like the bitter person. Or as your wonderful Jennifer sister, who is an actor, said, you don't want to be bitterella. <laughs> I love that. You know, we also decided, kind of like we did with the River Run International Film Festival, there were a lot of features playing at Tribeca these past couple of weeks that did get mainstream releases. So we're going to be talking about them closer to their national release dates. But there's one that I just wanted to give a shout out here. Francis Ford Coppola's wife, Eleanor, who's also Sophia's mother. I should just say Eleanor Coppola. She made her feature debut at the age of 81. She did a narrative feature with Diane Lane. So that's coming out in a couple of weeks. Paris can wait. And while I think that's great, I also think it it uh, it actually 
enlarges the obvious nepotism in Hollywood that allows somebody at 81 to break in when people who have worked 20 years like dogs cannot, you know, like your name counts. There's no question about it. So, Well, she has made documentaries before, but they were about the making of the movies that her family members have done. So she did one about Apocalypse Now. She did one about, I think, Marie Antoinette, her daughter's movie. But Hollister, while we were in New York, some very sad news broke, and I immediately texted you because I was sure you'd already heard. And then when I labeled it sad news, I was really scared. You thought I was going to be referring to the L.A. mayor designating April 25th La La Land Day. No, I have totally moved on. Jonathan Demme passed away in New York City while we were there. He did. Good morning. Dr. Lecter, my name is Clarice Starling. May I speak with you? You're one of Jack Crawford's, aren't you? Yeah, and that sort of leads us to our list of six, because I thought it would be fun to put out there just six Jonathan Demme things that we, you know, I get three and you get three. So do you want to kick us in? Jodie Foster issued a fantastic statement the moment he passed away. And one of the things she said is that he was as quirky as his comedies and as deep as his dramas. And I just wanted to mention, as my first one, Married to the Mob. That one I'm going to put under quirky comedies. Michelle Pfeiffer, Alec Baldwin, Matthew Modine. In a Jonathan Demme film, Married to the Mob. That's nice. Very different than the movie Hmm. that I'm assuming you're going to mention, for which he is best known. (laughs) One of the people we sort of debate with offline, Lalu and I have a mutual love for Silence of the Lambs, and I think she would probably come back apoplectic if I didn't bring it up. And I am going to bring it up, but I'm going to bring it up a little bit differently. Okay, and that is to say that um, he didn't want uh, Anthony Hopkins to play the role. He wanted Sean Cottery to play it. Uh, here's what here's what uh, Jonathan said about it. He said, Sean Connery was the only other person I thought could be amazing for this. Connery has that fierce intelligence and also serious physicality. I love the combination of those two things when talking about that character. I love Tony Hopkins, but Sean Connery could be amazing, which is, you know, when you say but, it really does show that sort of that was... Uh, that was his choice around that. But then I want to read another quote he said. He also added that the electric first read-through with Hopkins was unbelievable. All the executives were there. There was electricity in that room coming off of what Hopkins was doing. He had found Lecter. And I remember when he delivered the last line, the room was just silent. And my producer, Kenny Ut, just goes real quiet, oh, yeah. So he said, I realized that the bottom line truth of doing Silence of the Lambs, something I felt when I read that book, I thought this could be the scariest movie ever. And I wanted to make that movie. I wanted to make a psycho caliber effing terrifying movie. And so I'm going to leave you with that in terms of um, the fabulous Jonathan. Now, what happened to Sean Connery? Did he turn down the role? <laughs> it's funny you ask that because not only did he turn it down, he turned it down quite forcefully by saying, why would I ever want to play such a terrible, terrible person? Wow. Yeah, but I don't think Anthony Hopkins feels badly, and I couldn't help but wonder as Anthony Hopkins was accepting his Academy Award for the performance, do you wonder if Sean Connery was thinking 007's not looking quite as good as it did before? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, what's your next one? Okay, I'm going to mention Swimming to Cambodia. That starred and was written by Spalding Gray. That came out in 1984. 
and it was about his participation in the film The Killing Fields. The next day off, there was no doubting where we were going. Down to Caron Beach, it was fantastic. Ivan passed me a tie stick. I took a few tokes. I didn't care if my kundalini got loose on the beach and went wild, even ran away and never wanted to see it again. Just a very different kind of movie, and it also starred your man, Sam Waterston. Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, well, I am going to talk a little bit now about something wild. Jonathan Demme loved music, and he loved music maybe more than he loved film. And he actually directed five musical videos, and one of them I'm going to talk about later. But something wild, he does this dance scene that starts off with the musicians playing, and he stays on them much longer than normal for that type of thing. And then he goes to Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith, and he builds up their dance through the through the sequence. And we're going to put the um, video up on social media and also on our website. You know, there's a very famous dancing scene where Uma Thurman and Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Do you remember that dance scene? Oh yes. Yeah, I mean Iconic. everyone has seen that, but I want to tell you. Go watch this dance scene. It rivals that one. It really does. Okay, for my last one, I'm going to mention that Jonathan Demme also directed for television. One of his last projects was directing for Shots Fired on Fox, and that just happened to air the night that he passed away. Hmm, so weird. last week when it was on TV, you know, they put up the scroll saying, remembering Jonathan Demme. Wow. I didn't even know that, huh? Okay. And I'm going to end with, um, again, he, he was very big on music. So he did the video, Bruce Springsteen, Streets of Philadelphia, that was nice done ball. in 1993 uh, around the movie Philadelphia. And actually, it was a chock-pack full uh, songs for that year for the Oscars. And Bruce Springsteen won for Streets of Philadelphia. And here's what's amazing when you watch the video. And again, we'll put this up on social media and the website. When you watch the video, what he did so well is he told the story that Bruce was singing. And the streets of Philadelphia, he melds with Bruce Springsteen singing it in a very different way than you've ever seen Bruce. And you really can see how Bruce is seeing the streets of Philadelphia. I mean, it's actually genius. It's really, really well done. So I just want to end with the fact that he was a jack of all trades. He loved music. He loved film. He loved videos. Uh, He clearly loved TV, so I will miss him greatly, and I will uh, always be thankful for what he brought to me in Silence of the Lambs. The Oscar goes to to Jonathan Demme for Silence of the Lambs. Okay, we saw a movie together. We did, and it was pretty (laughs) exciting because... We saw the movie (laughs) where the movie was taking place. It's the movie Norman. And I feel as though Richard Gere was walking down our street. I mean, there we were on Broadway. Yeah, so much of it takes place right where we saw the movie. But I didn't know Gere had that in him, but you did, right? Well, I had seen him in The Hoax. And even when he played the cuckold and unfaithful when he was Diane Lane's husband, I thought, okay, he's not always the guy that comes out on top. But the full name of the movie is Norman, the moderate rise and tragic fall of a New York fixer. (laughs) And it was all of those things. And the interweaving of this tale is painful, painful, painful to watch. You know how when you watch someone make a total fool of themselves and you just wish you weren't in the room? Mm. Good morning, Bill. 
Norman Oppenheimer. I have to leave. This is unacceptable. So I'll tell my partners that we had a good conversation. I've seen people do close-ups of Richard Gere when he's being sexy Richard Gere, but I've never seen them do so many close-ups when he's a character that is so filled with angst and earnest hopefulness and, God, it was good. Did you like it? Well, I couldn't really figure out how much I liked it apart from my obsession that as I was watching it, I was so intent on watching Richard Gere not be Richard Gere that that held my interest. Yeah, he's all, you're right, you're right, If it didn't star Richard Gere, I'm not sure that I would have been drawn to this story. His character was somewhere between Willie Loman and Woody Allen. I thought Willie Loman too, definitely. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't see Woody yeah. Allen. Oh, come on. You're a little harsh on Woody Allen, I'm afraid. That was a little judgy. You think I'm being harsh on Woody Allen by comparing Richard Gere's character to Woody Allen, the neurotic New Yorker? No, I think you're being harsh on, on Richard Gere's character. I, mean, I, I don't know. No, I just don't. I, don't, I didn't see them in... I'm in, actually expressing the range of Richard Gere's acting oh, ability. Oh. Because most people would not be casting him as a Woody Allen-like figure. Did you find this character Woody Allen-ish? Yes. Oh, no, I didn't. New York, neurotic. I felt like he was even wearing his little raincoat. Right. He was a wannabe, and he couldn't quite get in to where he wanted to be. <laughs> and um, and I've seen that a lot in life, you know, where people just want so desperately to be part of that club. I mean, you see it in elementary school. You see it in junior high school. You see it in high school. And watching it in this elder gentleman who spent his entire existence trying to help people connect and become famous and fabulous, and and then he could be the power broker behind all that, you know. Uh, I just, I thought it was really, really a, an incredibly complex plot, and I thought it was really well cast. Do you think the driving force behind his character traits was a desire to help, or do you think it was a desire to be accepted with the popular kids on the playground? Oh, he wanted to be part, he wanted to be a power broker, but he didn't care about the money. It was never for the money, you know, it was for, it was for the, uh, it was for the power play, in my opinion, you know, so, um, would you recommend people see this? I think they for sure have to find a place to see it. I wouldn't say that. I would say if you're a Richard Gere fan and you want to see yeah. him do something different. There were some very creative touches in this movie, though, that I found interesting. There were some fantasy-like sequences where they split the frame and people were in two different scenes looking at each other, but not actually able to see each other because it was two different scenes, but that gave it a very theatrical effect. Now, also, it gave new meaning to the walk and talk. I mean, poor Norman never sat down through the whole movie. I mean, Richard Gere must be exhausted, right? It's probably a good thing because, as they allude to in the movie, it wasn't entirely clear that he even had a home to go to. It's so funny because this movie is not going to get Nash. I mean, it's just not going to get a huge viewership. It's just not. But I think it begs the question that in the end, what really matters? And are you searching for things that in the end won't necessarily matter? I just found it wonderful. But also, in doing a little homework around this, I kept thinking to myself, God, I I just didn't know he was that good. And then I wondered, why isn't he getting more roles? And then I read that actually after when when he was at the, I think it was either the Academy Awards or the Golden Globes, I can't remember for sure, but... He talked about the Dalai Lama, and he talked about how China should give back Tibet. And unfortunately for him, although he says he doesn't care, um, a lot of Hollywood is backed by Chinese currency. 
and money. And now more than ever. Yeah. And he said he couldn't get a job. Like nobody wanted to hire him because then they were afraid that the Chinese wouldn't fund it. And he said he really lost out on a lot of roles because of it. In fact, people, things that were in the works all of a sudden were no longer. And then he couldn't get, he couldn't get a script to look at. And now I think he's sort of coming out of that. But I, I just was grateful to see it. I'm so glad we had that chance. And we so rarely get to see movies together. It was really fun to be with you. And I mean, Richard Gere hasn't been suffering from a total lack of roles. This definitely did have that indie feel. Yeah. But it was interesting that it was funded by Israel. <laughs> and the scenes that took place in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, were actually shot there, which I found oh. very interesting. I didn't know that. And again, some, you know, quirky little touches. I loved how they did the credit graphics at the end where they connected <laughs> them with little arrows, just like the scene with his notepad. Right. Well, it was all showing how it was a network. It was showing how he was networking people. To be practical, we need to raise approximately $14 million to save us from the wrecking ball. And this is where our friend Norman Oppenheimer comes in. You know Norman Oppenheimer? No, I don't. Well, I don't know. Very nice, nice to meet you. you. You know, the cast included Dan Stevens from Downton Abbey, Josh Charles from The Good Wife, and you mentioned Dead Poet Society last week, Hank Azaria, who has won six Emmys, and, you know, most notably for his work on The Simpsons, and Dowd, who's in The Handmaid's Tale huh. that we're going to be talking about, Steve Buscemi, the king of independent movies, and Michael Sheen from Frost Nixon. Definitely a stacked cast yeah, of actors. Was. This is my private home. No, you can't, can't just walk in it and sit at my table. I would be curious to know how long it took them to film it. Didn't I see it. bet it was pretty quick, and it was written yeah, and directed by Joseph Cedar. And I think whenever you have the same writer-director, there's already that unity of yeah, vision. Where exactly. I think he knew exactly the story he wanted to tell. Exactly. Why do I get the feeling that nothing you tell me is real? Let's just say, get ready for a big surprise. And then we both went to the same movie again, twice in one week. I don't even know what to say. And this was my idea. And are you mad at me? <laughs> Are you talking about the circle? I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not like I went into this blindly. I know you wanted to go, so I, I went. I was dying but, to go. What are you kidding? Of course. But as you know, the circle was not my favorite Dave Eggers book. I'm not a huge fan of Tom Hanks. Neither of us loved their last collaboration, A Hologram for the King. And you know, between the two of us, I am not the one who feels the need to be conked over the head with the message of the pitfalls of social media, since <laughs> I'm the recluse of the two of us. Um, so it's not like I went in with expectations that were just going to be dashed. How would you describe what the circle is to, say, your grandmother? It's the chaos of the web made elegant. Speed round, Paul or John? Early Paul, late John. Mario or Sonic? Early Sonic, late Mario. Needs of the society or needs of the individual? Should be the same. You're most scared of? Unfulfilled potential. Yeah, well, um, I think there were a couple of weaknesses. You know, I actually really liked the book. And to me, this was really a Google situation. You know, there was a time when people were really concerned that Google would take over the world because it had every piece of information about you that nobody else had. And information is power. And really, that is the backbone of what this the whole circle was about. But um, but the weakness for me was, you know, was was your friend, Emma Watson. And, you know, the lead role, by the way, of May was first offered to Alicia um, Vikander, uh, who, um, according to her, was, you know, one of the three roles offered simultaneously. Um, 
and so uh, Assassin's Creed, and then also um, Jason Bourne, and she did Bourne because it was just a fan factor, and she thought she would get bigger exposure from it. But, uh, you know, I think Emma Watson, I think it reinforced the criticism I had of her in um, Beauty and the Beast. I think, by the way, she can look, she can look moved and earnest really well, but her line delivery was not there. Did you, would you agree? Can we talk about the lines given okay, to the that's entire right. yeah, cast? Yeah, you're right, yeah, you're right, you're right. The movie, it was written and directed by James Ponsolt, who did a movie that I loved. He directed The End of the Tour, which you and I podcasted about. Loved it, Both about. yeah, exactly. Loved it. This one, Dave Eggers, also has a screenwriting credit. I found the screenplay so clunky. It was not nuanced. There were no tough choices. Everything was so black and white that you just felt manipulated the whole time through. Totally so agree. interestingly yeah. to me, I n- never once did I feel emotionally connected to the story. So the scenes that were easiest to watch were when Tom Hanks and Emma Watson, both independently, were addressing the company, the circle, on stage. Which so they was, were of doing course, their little you know, done in a Steve Jobs-like manner. But what's interesting about that is, I was just going to say, the only time the screenplay worked was when Tom Hanks was on this was was in it. And here's what I think about that: I think Tom Hanks could make the delivery the what it needed to be. When you when you have a script that's a little lacking, some actors can pull that out, and Tom Hanks did. So of course you liked her better when she was with him because he elevated the entire thing. No, no, that's not exactly what I meant. Um, I don't think he elevated. I think he was given the easier role because when you saw him, it was mostly him doing soliloquies on stage. She was given thankless lines. And it's very interesting. There were so many scenes where when more than one character was present, it almost looked like tryouts for Irish step dancing, (laughs) where when you looked at the actors, their arms are pinned to their sides and you just see their mouths move. And I thought, why on earth did they do a wide angle shot when these people aren't even moving? Again, I did not feel emotionally connected at all. Even when, for those who've read the book, there is a character who is killed. Everyone had such a freaky, yeah, but he did a terrible job. I'm sorry, to he that. was not believable for five minutes. The guy who died, yeah, Eller Coltrane from Boyhood. He's a which, bad actor. I'm sorry, but he he was terrible. I, did you see Boyhood? No, but I can tell you, in this, he was terrible. Again, it was just a thankless script. The only actor who I thought seemed very believable wasn't her mother, who I thought was an odd duck. It was Bill Paxton playing Emma Watson's father, the character with muscular dystrophy. And that, to me, was the most emotional thing about the movie, was watching Bill Paxton in his last role since he passed away in February. And they did dedicate the film to him, by the way, just so, mm-hmm. you know, just to, to give a shout out around that. Well, the film I have to compare it to is The Net which was done in the mid-90s. Now, the net in the mid-90s was about cyber danger coming out of the Internet, and the Internet had just arrived, so it was very, very futuristic. Um, And it also suffered from a pretty difficult uh, script. But it just shows the acumen of uh, Sandra Bullock, who was able to pull the lines out and make them A, believable, and B, compelling to the storyline. And I think that Emma Watson just doesn't have the the acumen to do that. And Eller Coltrane, who you were just speaking about, who plays her ex-boyfriend, 
I mean, at one point he has such an, he has such an easy moment where he's saying, Hey, this is not who you are. You know, what are you doing here? I mean, it was so badly delivered. It just was just out of place. And, you know, it just was, it was just awkward and awful. And it, I thought the movie was such a snoozer and I couldn't tell if because they were so trying to portray the social satire of an atomized emotionless world it was as though the humans had completely forgotten how humans interact with each other I didn't I the other problem I had with Watson is that um I didn't I didn't find her likable so when she gets in trouble I was like well you're getting every single thing you deserve you know which but what turns out interestingly enough I did a little homework afterward and they did test the film six months ago, and audiences felt very strongly the way I did that Emma Watson was just not, um, you know, she was just not appealing. And so they changed, they had her come back in and they changed her, um, you know, they changed her role. And then they went back and looked at her, you know, her test screenings for it, and they were like, oh, mistake. You know, I, I, I don't think it was just the script. I think it was also her delivery of the script. And I think that when, when Tom Hanks is with her on the stage, he elevates the whole thing and gets, and sort of lifts her off, which is exactly the way I felt in Beauty and the Beast. I never thought she could control the scene. But again, Tom Hanks in this movie is only on the stage. Well, actually, that's not so. In his office... And then you see him on stage, and that's it. No, you see him in the office with her. They have quite a long scene, actually, where he's in the office talking to her about what happened to her that night. And I think that scene, again, you know, she was lost until, until he's in, he really elevate. That's one of the, I thought, one of the stronger scenes in the, in the movie. But let's reverse their roles. Say Tom Hanks is given this to act out, that he desperately needs a job. So he takes the job and he's so thrilled to get the job. And he then goes kayaking by himself and he capsizes. But the camera that the circle had given him saved his life. So the next day he decides to go in and go completely transparent because he's been so convinced overnight that he should go from one extreme to the other. And then he's got to walk around with this camera attached to himself filming his parents and everyone else, he wouldn't be a likable character either. Well, see, it wasn't a likable you know, character in the book. I don't think that's what happened. So I, so I have to start from that premise. First of all, it's not that she was desperate for another job. This was job was the creme de la creme, just as a job at Google or Apple is the creme de la creme. So she was going from a job that she didn't like, but to the creme de la creme job where she just couldn't believe her good fortune. Okay. And then the indoctr you're leaving out the indoctrination, the incident that happens to her. Yes, yeah, she, but it's not just based on that incident. It's based on a ton of things leading up to that incident. So that incident was the catalyst and they were able to talk her into being somebody who, who comes forward. But keep in mind, they she had watched somebody else be 24, you know, the senator two days before, or the congresswoman had stood up and said she was going to go 24-7, you know, to great acclaim and cheer. And it's sort of like, what do I have to hide? Of course I... In other words, there was a buildup to that that I thought was actually legitimate and what, you know, well, well played in that. So it's not as if that happened that night and that's when she became there. I mean, we see a whole okay. lead up to work. 
where she gets. My remarks were for the sake of brevity because I had the exact same problem with the book. But again, the movie opens. She's with her parents. You can tell the father has muscular dystrophy. She has to ask the parents, what about the insurance? Well, the insurance doesn't pay for this. And then she gets a job that would cover her parents' insurance. So she takes the job. And then all of a sudden, she's like in a communist youth group run by Stasi's. It wasn't some (laughs) subtle... You know, the book wasn't subtle, in my opinion. The movie certainly isn't subtle. So it's not, it's almost like setting up a flim-flam argument that's just too easy to knock down because it wasn't nuanced in showing the benefits and the downfalls of social media. I think a book, again, I didn't really care for the characters, but a book that I thought was more nuanced was Super Sad True Love Hmm. Story, a novel by Gary Steingart. I haven't read that, but I'll, I'll pick it up for sure. Without secrets, without the hoarding of knowledge and information, we can finally realize our potential. Circlers, do you like to share? Share We will see it all. If it happens, we'll know. Well, the other thing is, you know, they haven't, nobody's figured out quite yet. A lot of things take place on a screen. So when she's learning her job that's on the screen, you know, there are a lot of things that are taking place on the screen. And, you know, the first group that did it really well was House of Cards, you know, where the texting back and forth, they were able to sort of make that action oriented. And certainly um, Fifty Shades of Grey was able to do that. I think they had trouble with the screenshots, like the screens, they just were not, uh, they weren't strong, you know, maybe there should have been a picture next to each comment. So you could see the diversity of the people making the comments, because the comments didn't sound like they were coming from people. And so, you know, there were lots of of things that they'll get right down the road, because this is not the last time we're going to see this kind of thing. But, um, but I, I don't, I don't recommend not seeing it. I have nothing positive to say about the movie at all. Actually, I take that back. One positive thing I can say is that Danny Elfman did the music. And just to try to keep myself interested while being there in the movie theater, feeling a little bit like Belle and Beauty and the Beast going, (laughs) okay, I'm being held captive, but I'll try to get through it, was I was wondering if Emma Watson was going to bring her real life Silicon Valley bow to the premiere. Okay, well, there you go. So maybe we should move to The Handmaid's Tale now, which like... Another dystopian tale. I know, right? But one other thing that I did find interesting was in the opening credits, you realize that this was an Abu Dhabi production. And at the very end, they mentioned that the circle was filmed entirely in California, which goes hand in hand with Netflix's big announcement this past yeah. week that they are moving all of their production to California. They're sure that that's going to enable them to get better actors and stuff. Yeah, well, certainly better weather for shooting all their projects. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to move into The Handmaid's Tale. You girls will serve the leaders and their barren wives. You will bear children for them. Okay, so look, you know, The Handmaid's Tale has been much discussed. And when the um, book came out in 86? 86 in the U.S., 85 in Canada. I guess since we all lived through 1984, the Orwellian year, it was time for another dystopian novel. Yeah, uh, Margaret Atwood's book, you know, it, it it's... It, one of the reasons it's getting such hype now is that um, is that you 
you, everyone, a lot of people in America are very concerned at the direction of the government. And so I wanted to open with Elizabeth Moss, who said one might expect people to flinch in reaction to such a bleak reflection in the looking glass. Instead, she's been surprised by this response of so many people wanting to to gaze deeply into it. And she said, one of the things we all talk about in the show, and that is in the book, is that people didn't look up from their phones until it was too late. She's the one who plays Offred in the series. And this, this, there's this concept going around now, this phrase of waking up, you know, or being woke, as kids say. And so the talk around The Handmaid's Tale is less around this production and more around the politics of it. But from the production standpoint, I I thought it took them a really long time. I mean, you know, the, the movie that was done with Faye Dunaway that I talked about last week was an hour and a half for the whole thing. We're three hours into it and we're just barely started. I mean, do, do you think it's a little slow moving? I don't. I think that this is what Meryl Streep talked about when she was offered her first television role in the upcoming The Knicks based on the book. I think that the series, the long form, is a much better format for a Margaret Atwood novel. And blessed are those who suffer for the cause of righteousness. This book totally freaked me out when I read it, partly because I read it in college, and Margaret Atwood has said that she started the book when she was still living in West Berlin, but she finished it when she was a fellow at Harvard, and many of the scenes are actually set on what's actually the Harvard campus. So as I was reading the book, the execution scenes along the river, I can totally picture where all these things were taking place. But scarier still, Margaret Atwood has said that everything that takes place in the book has happened in history at one point or another, somewhere in the world, to women. Interesting. Really interesting. And then there I am watching the Hulu adaptation, and in the very first episode... Margaret Atwood herself makes a cameo, slaps Elizabeth Moss across the head, and I thought, okay, this is now my original trauma compounded. I was blown away by the production values. Hulu must have poured money into this. The cinematography, the lighting, every scene to me could be a Vermeer painting. No, by the way, the 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 setup of every scene is is incredible. But the problem is, <clears throat> maybe two thirds of the of the three hours are women in these red um, sort of. Um, uh, almost nun costumes from the flying nun period because the flying nun had the same tails on her headdress so that she could fly. And they have these t- these things sticking out to sort of guard people from seeing them or them seeing other people. But um, it's, it's going to be hard to maintain that is interesting because how many times can these people walk two by two down the road and not have it sort of, you know, come at you. I think they were smart, though, not to release all the episodes at once and to oh, go absolutely. back to a yep. one episode yep. every Wednesday night. Every ne- Wednesday night, seven more episodes. So all in told, there'll be uh, 10 hours of this. So a movie that was an hour and a half, which I watched again and you might want to do, uh, is now drawn out to 10 hours. And they've already, one of the things that the Faye Dunaway movie doesn't do is it doesn't go into the backstory at all. It really just starts right when it's all there. And it's very little reference to life before. And I'd say already a third of what they're showing us is the life before. So 
I like that. I think that's nice, don't you? I do. And Alistair, you know something that I also thought was outstanding? What? The use of music. The way they lay in 80s music in particular. I think it's you a don't brilliant use me. of music. <laughs> <laughs> a character I find fascinating in this Hulu series is Yvonne Strahovski, who plays the commander's wife. I think she's, yeah, she's, I think she's much better than Faye Dunaway. Amazing. She reminds me of Portia yeah. de Rossi. She has to show a lot of range where she goes from being terrible to Elizabeth Moss to nice to her when she thinks she's pregnant. Well, also what's interesting is there are a number of characters in this um, that are people of color. I'll send you to the colonies. You'll be cleaning up toxic waste and then you'll die. Elizabeth Moss's, you know, friend that she sort of runs into, Maura, um, she happens to be black. And what's interesting is there were no black characters in the original novel because Gilead, the repressive regime, right, that that um, classified all black people as children of Ham, which is a reference to the belief held by some Christian denominations that black people are descendants from Noah's son Ham and therefore subject to curse leveled by Ham at Noah. And forcibly they were settled, resettled them in the upper Midwest. So so there weren't any. Okay, so Hulu made the decision to sort of reject that and bring them in so that it's a much more diverse group of people playing the roles. And I, I like that better, actually. I thought it was good. You know, just the fact that they did that is what makes me much more sanguine about this, because it's true. While in the novel, they were all white in 2017, that would just seem yeah, it bizarre, just doesn't make any as sense. opposed to being part of a cult. How about that, Alexis? There's an eye in your house. You know, it was a little odd seeing Rory in a dystopian thing. But she was good. Come her, on. Well, seeing her walk down the street with Elizabeth Moss, I realized that they are related through a real-life husband and an on-screen something kind of interest because Alexis Bledel is married to Vincent Cartizer. Who and they both Pete, did Mad Men, yeah. But, which but, I think watching Mad Men, to me, feels, I know dystopian is the wrong word, but I find that even more bothersome because that's the way things really were not that long ago. I think that we get to see her chops. We've never seen them before. And I watched the preview for the next one, and then I really saw her chops. I mean... I think she can act. That girl can act. She can definitely cry. Yeah. And I'm very curious what's going to happen in the future episodes because the first three episodes, even when you hear her, Elizabeth Moss's voice seems different to me from part to part. And, you know, she still sounds a little bit like Rory, but when you see her start to get tortured, I thought, okay, she is pulling this off very well. A person, though, that I was really impressed with who was also in Norman is Anne Dowd. Remember your scripture. Blessed are the meek. Boy, does she play that scary. Of course, they have to give her the Irish accent, but the woman <laughs> that just kept, uh, you know, subjecting Elizabeth Moss to electric shocks. Boy, right. did she have a very different part than she did uh, in Norman. Yeah, well, she seemed to enjoy every minute of it. She could have gone to the Fifty Shades Darker team, you know. Uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's moment in time. They were very lucky with this moment in time. I'm not sure it would have gotten quite the, the headlights that it's getting without it's being this moment in time. Well, you know, people keep saying that, but the novel did come out in 1985 and it's never been out of print. So it's captivated audiences through many different sea changes. Even when they were talking about Mercury and the Fish, and you watch it in 2017, and you hear statistics about how 95% of our world's 
population of fish now is contaminated with mercury. Yeah, it gives one yeah. pause. But let me ask you this, Hollister. When they flash back to how their life was before they became handmaids and Martha's and Commander's wives, did you think they were trying to show a reality that was just already right there on the verge of becoming totalitarian? Or did you think that their prior lives were going to strike you as more unicorns and roses? Well, it's so funny because when I'm watching their prior life, there were piece of, pieces of it that I thought, as I think now, um, were terrible, uh-huh. you know, that it, people were not happy. And um, I don't think people are happy now. And so, no, what I, what I thought was the juxtaposition of the reason it could sort of, you know, like when, when her husband says to her, I'll take care of you, which he says in the book, and he said, you know, I mean, we don't see that in the in the first movie of The Handmaid's Tale, but there was a piece of him that wanted that position of taking care of her. And, you know, that all her money was going to go to him. And he was like, well, don't worry about it. I'll, you know, I'll take care of you. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to worry about it. You know, mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, so there were parts of it that were frightening real because it could sh- it showed how it could go. The, the thing that is most terrifying is that when they killed Congress, and blew up Congress. And then they said, okay, we have to take away your rights for a short amount of time. We have to do this to keep the country safe. That's when people went to sleep, you know, and they should have said absolutely not. And if you look back in our history, you know, uh, nine years ago, you know, there was this time right after 9-11 when many of the lawmakers were saying, well, we have to listen to your phone calls and you have to, everybody has to give up that privacy level. And, you know, and we're going to look at your bank accounts because if huge numbers are traveling from one bank account to another, you could be a terrorist. I mean, there, it's not as if this is coming from left field nowhere. And also, one of the things that was very clear there is the news was misrepresenting what was happening, and that's happening now. And so there is this moment in time when a lot of people are standing up and saying, this is just a little frightening, well, you know? And I remember when we went to that talk about I Am Malala, where the woman who knew Malala was there, and they were discussing things in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen several movies in the, the past couple of years about life in Afghanistan and trying to get girls educated again. And you hear these heartbreaking stories about how many freedoms women around the world know, enjoyed. Right? And then seemingly overnight, they were just taken away and women could no longer drive and even you think about Argentina, where exactly. people's bank accounts were confiscated overnight, where your ATM cards no longer worked. Well, I, you know, I don't think the country's asleep, you know, and maybe this is one of those wake-up calls. But um, but I also I also think it's well-acted, and I think it's well-written, and I think it's well-directed. And so, you know, when you're watching it, it's, you know, you, you end up sort of feeling disquieted by this moment in time that they're in. And at the same time, from a production standpoint, I think it's up there. I think it's really good. The production values are immense. And one thing that my sister mentioned, which I thought was a really interesting note, is she said to her it would have been even more interesting if when Margaret Atwood had thought up this dystopian future, if she had inverted the power roles more. So even in the dystopian future, you know, you still have the commander, you still have the chauffeur, you still have the wives. It's not as though the chauffeur ends up on top. Right. So when you think about it, it's very Downton Abbey 
really. Exactly. You know, before and after. You know who plays the chauffeur? Max Minghella? He's the son of the late Oscar-winning director, hmm. Anthony Minghella, who did The English uh, Patient. yet again. Yeah, he's pretty good. He's good so far. I think. Yeah, when you flash back to their prior lives, the lighting is actually very dark. And I think the lighting is so consciously done. And yet when you're in the present and they're walking down the streets in their scarlet robes, you sometimes see very green trees, which again could be because some of these scenes were shot in Canada. But it's an interesting juxtaposition of color and light. And again, the cinematography is award winning. I really felt like she could have been the girl with right. the pearl earring. I think the other thing that it points out that is a point of pause is that this could happen really fast and there'd be nothing you can do about it. So if someone freezes all the bank accounts in America and you can't get money out, you can't run away. I mean, it's, you know, nobody has money at home anymore. You know, the ability for any government to take away your power to have independence in this world is pretty easy. <laughs> and so, especially with technology, if they just cut off all the internet services and there was no more Wi-Fi and that's the way you get all your information, it's not that far afield that a government, I'm not saying our government, I'm saying any government could in fact do this. You know, you could cut off communication. Communication is everything. And I, I think that's the wake up call. My name is Alfred. I had another name. Ladies, I have to let you go. It's the law now. They needed to do it this way. All the bank accounts and the jobs all at the same time. Did you follow all the brouhaha around the cast and their comments at the Toronto Film Festival? How they kept quoting Elizabeth Moss as saying it wasn't a feminist story. And then some male producers on the show and the showrunner had to come out and say, oh, no, 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 it's totally a feminist story. And she understands that. And every cast member understands that. I thought Elizabeth Moss took heat where it really wasn't warranted. because No, I didn't read that. The complete quote that I read by Elizabeth Moss is this. The Handmaid's Tale is not a feminist story. It's a human story because women's rights are human rights. I find this unobjectionable. Even when you see the first episode and they're going along the river past the three people who've been executed, and it's three men, or at least it appears to be a doctor, a priest, and a gay man. I thought, okay, this is a dystopian story. It's a cautionary tale. But the fact that she had to come out and issue another press release and people to say, no, 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 we all understand it's a feminist story. I thought this lack of letting someone express a nuance, you know, a nuanced opinion, let alone a diversity of opinion, is the kind of oppression that I think they're trying to warn us against, really, on some <laughs> well, level. No, I don't see that at all. But, but also, I think their problem with that is women had zero power. No women had power. The only people who had power were men. And the way they got power to do what they wanted to do was to oppress all women. And so it's not as if women had any rights under this, this position. So it really wasn't that, you know, these were all human rights. These were women's rights that were taken away and all their power was taken away. And that's how they got away well, with it. I totally understand that, especially yeah. as it progresses. But there are actually very few men portrayed in this. You see the commander, you see the chauffeur, who doesn't yeah. have a lot of rights himself. You see the military men and to date one interrogator. But what to me is really disturbing is that the women all turn on the women. So they completely 
absorb this caste system and they all play their roles. Well, I don't know that they absorb the caste system as much as, you know, they were programmed. You know, when you sizzle somebody, if they express any point of view other than you're right, these are, you know, I am just this person. When you sizzle them every time they do that, eventually they're going to give in. And who was doing the sizzling? It was Anne Dowd. The right. whole plot line reminds me very much. And of course, Margaret Atwood came out with this 20 years earlier. But the movie Children of Men, which starred Clive Owen and Julianne Moore, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who did Y tu mamá también. I can't really remember when I last had any hope. And I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really, since women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for? A very similar yeah, tale. Yeah, um, really, really shocking. So, okay, so between that... <laughs> And circle, it's like there's no hope, and why don't we just yes. all pack it in? Okay, so okay, can we we I need to know. move on? Okay, so now we need to move from these very serious, sad things to I watched the Jean Benet stuff this week. Oh my goodness! Okay, Hollister, that's okay. not sad. I, it is the totally, killing but of I was a little just girl. Pretending. I was okay. getting everybody all excited that maybe we're going to move on to something better. But what's really interesting is Pinkman Cat, who you know we we are interactive with on social media, and she's a big screen thought supporter and she just said so she sends this email saying i just took a break from binging handmaid's tale to give the netflix documentary casting jean benet a try since this is a new way to do a documentary i thought it might be of interest to you my thoughts this is actually a pretty good watch if you're going to be expecting to solve the case or even reveal additional details about it you'll be disappointed because it's not the point but without revealing too much the highlights that um I really don't know what's happening behind closed doors. The mask we all wear in public is so different than what we happens in private. And basically the premise of this quote documentary, which I don't think it should be able to be called, that is all these actors come in to try out for the parts and they ask these actors questions as if they were the part they're playing. I'm auditioning for the role of John Ramsey. I'm auditioning for the role of Patsy Ramsey. Okay, people, here we go. So none of it is none of it is oh. based on any sort of facts other than things they've read, and some of them, interestingly enough, had read things that are not accurate, and some had. But for them to call it a documentary, I thought that was definitely a stretch. So of course, I had to do a little digger deep thing, and CBS um, is being sued now by the brother of Jean Benet Ramsey. He's filed a seven hundred and fifty million dollar defamation lawsuit. Um, because of the CBS program, The Case of Jean Benet Ramsey, that aired in September. So, of course, I had to go onto my CBS account and watch that. And I always knew it was the brother. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> okay, now, by the way, I have no right to say that, and no one's ever proven that. And this poor guy, God help him if he didn't do it. But I remember my cousin Pam lives in Boulder, and cousin Pam, who I don't even know if she listens to our podcast, but. And she and I would talk every week, and I'd be like, I have to solve this case. I'm a case solver. I mean, obviously, Silence of the Lambs. So for Jean Benet, I was going to figure out who had done this to this, you know, this compelling child. And I always thought it was the brother, because he was never interviewed by the police. 
he was the only one they would want to protect. Neither one of those parents seemed like they did it. I mean, like I had this whole host of reasons and then they go in and they start to sort of prove it with some scientific facts around it. And I'm like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. And then at the end I realized it's so unfair because they know this man has not been challenged in a court of law. You know, he seems to be living a, a, you know, a life, but he had issues in school, you know, he had anger issues about her. He had hit her over the head with the golf club once before. Wow. You know, I, I just I just think, gosh, how could they not finish this case one way or another? In cases like that, it's always somebody you know. Good girl. The mother had to do it. Why would she have no motive? And then her husband. I think he's the innocent one. Actually, the son. There's no way a nine-year-old could pull off a murder like this. If you're going to watch Casting Jean Benet, then you have to go and watch the CBS alongside it because I think it'll give you some sort of perspective. So Pink Man Cat, my suggestion is you go watch that. And secondly, I can't believe I just said out loud that I thought it was the kid, but I always did. So now, Did it remind you of the making of a murderer? Uh, I, you know, I never... That's a really good question. And maybe it does, but it was just better, better pitched. Do you know what I mean? Uh, but this, you know, the, CBS spent substantial dollars putting this uh, special together, although they may have to spend substantial dollars paying this guy off <laughs> $750 million, a lot of money for CBS. So I just, you know, I, you know, and I, it's so unfair for me to say, and I just want to say right out loud so nobody can sue us that I have no idea who did it. Us? I, well, <laughs> screen thought. I have Don't no idea who did it. I have no idea bus. who did it. I have no idea, but I always thought it was him. Oh, geez. Here you go again, Hollister. I know. I In the spirit of ending on a positive note. Why do we have to end on a positive What makes you think I want to have a spirited ending on a positive note? After this podcast of totally negative, 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 we yeah. have to just, we have to mourn the fact that we didn't have something more positive to talk about. <laughs> and before you get hauled off for your defamation hearing in your orange is the new black you'll represent jumpsuit. me right you will right <laughs> not a chance not a chance i'm oh, gonna thanks. try to get your room at the beacon thanks. hotel yeah i'm really happy to have your support thank you <laughs> i bet pink man cat will step forward and help you out there somebody please you know um okay i wanted to end with a note that we got from vera from chicago and she's a screenwriter producer and she wrote love your podcast it gets me through the day how sweet is that? I mean, that's already, you know, a very good start. Okay, um, here's what she says. Please review Goliath. She's three episodes in, and Vera says TV drama guru David E. Kelly has done it again. This mystery slash legal drama is fantastic. The cinematography rivals anything in theaters. Kelly's true gift after writing is casting talented ensembles, and everyone is terrific. Well, and I already I went and I already emailed her back and said I'm in. And but here's the thing, and it's starring Billy Bob Thornton and William Hurt. Okay, and frankly, this is exactly what you've been saying all along that these amazing actors are willing to come to 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 TV because it's the age of TV and you know the fact that he's willing to do that I thought was you know something in itself but I watched the um the trailer and it's great but it's on Amazon just so everybody knows okay and if I'm not here next week it's because I'm in jail and because <gasps> O'Toole just left me there and so if all of a sudden next week she says, oh, sorry, Hollister's on vacation this week. Please, someone come and get me. And Hollister, I can assure you, if you are in prison, I will bring you some Chianti and fava beans. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> okay. okay, I hate you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>